Welcome to episode 16 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. This time I'm talking about Joan Bennett and She Couldn't Take It from 1935. Directed by Tay Garnett, with a screenplay by Oliver H.B. Garrett, the film co-stars George Raft. You can find it on YouTube. A year before Carol Lombard played a spoilt heiress, reformed by William Powell and my man Godfrey, the same dynamic occurs between Joan Bennett and George Raft. The earlier version has much to recommend it in the way the picture develops tension between their class division, rather than with the more conservative class politics we see in the screwball classic. For example, William Powell's Godfrey isn't really from the working class when he becomes a butler for the rich family. He's from a wealthy Boston clan and has an Ivy League education. His path from back bay scion to forgotten man is to some degree chosen. Godfrey could have used his name and influence to escape the trash heap. And class, after all, involves much more than how much money you have in your pocket. Even in whiskers and rags, Godfrey had better manners and was more debonair than the men we see in top hats and tails during the scavenger hunt. He has the society bona fides to take charge of the family. Lombard's Irene Bullock ultimately doesn't betray her class when she falls for Godfrey. George Raft, on the other hand, as Spot Riccardi and She Couldn't Take It, has a voice and demeanor as blunt as a snub-nosed revolver. He uses rapid-fire slang that credentials his rise through the ranks of the underworld. If you have a fondness for Depression-era gangster Argo, this film serves up a real treat. Spot Riccardi meets Daniel Van Dyke, a wealthy real estate magnate played by Walter Connolly, in the prison library. Spot pulls his nose out of a book long enough to complain about missing pages. The society patriarch was sent up for five years for financial misdeeds, but seems relieved to be free of his family, who spend their lives making the front page with harebrained pranks. Raft calls him Pop and tells him that he's a sucker, an 18-carat sucker, for not being able to control his own family. When the older man attempts to explain, Spot dismisses him, saying all families are the same. He had a brother who tried to drink Lake Michigan dry and a sister who was dressed like Technicolor. Spot intervened. Now his brother's in university and his sister's in a a convent school. The man without any social standing takes the important man by the hand as a protege. The film suggests that the measure of a man isn't the size of his bank account, but how well he has his family in hand. Spot makes it clear that being tough is the only way to be the head of a family. He looks every bit the self-made, self-educated guy who clawed his way out of the tenements. When Spot pronounces words like hard-burled, viewers don't doubt that he entered the world with the odds stacked against him. He tells the society cellmate that his graduate degree was forged behind prison bars rather than on sheepskin. There's a bone of contention between them when it comes to their chosen professions. When Spot talks about his racket making beer, Van Dyke protests that bootlegging was never really a business. Spot, cool as a bucket of his homemade suds, replies, no, what was it? The rich man backtracks and says that his business never harmed anyone. Spot asks about those men who jumped out the window after the stock market crash in 1929. Deals on Wall Street, after all, are as cutthroat as those conducted in the back rooms of a speakeasy. Spot wastes no time pointing out the similarities. He's quicker on the uptake because he must be. 
one day Pop collapses in prison. On his deathbed, he makes Spot the trustee of his fortune. The bootlegger is reluctant but guilt-torn. He accepts the duty once he's reassured that he will have the broadest legal authority. Imagine who would refuse the opportunity to boss around the upper crust. In this picture, like always, George Raft looks like he's packing heat. But unlike many other roles, he's trying to stretch beyond communicating with pistols and brass knuckles. He is coarse and indelicate, but he shows more range in this role than any other I've seen. Raft usually rivals Buster Keaton for the nickname The Great Stoneface. Usually, his lack of reaction feels as predictable as the coin he tosses in Scarface. But watching him here in Tay Garnett's film was a revelation. He exhibits such range. Raft cracks jokes, he sings, he looks vulnerable and shaken when he has to rub elbows with the swells. He appears wistful when he can't woo a woman outside his class, like when he falls for Joan Bennett. When Raft appeared on The Mike Douglas Show in 1980, the year that he died, he seemed rueful when he summarized his career on screen. He said he never got the girl and he always died at the end. Well, in this one, he does get the girl and he isn't blown to bits. My previous estimation of Raft was unfair and short-sighted. He can't help being limited to stereotypical rough trade parts any more than the women cast as sexy dames in noir can. Clearly, he could do more than he was asked. Typecasting boxed in many actors from broadening their craft. But this is the Sassmouth Dames podcast, not gangsters who develop emotional intelligence. So let's turn to Joan Bennett. Joan Bennett doesn't play a goofball like Carol Lombard. She never seems as chastened as Irene Bollock does by the pious Godfrey. I'm not sure that Bennett could convincingly play a witless character. Even when her characters aren't educated, like in Scarlet Street, she's still haughty, shrewd, with a gimlet eye trained on those who she perceives have undue power or influence. Think about when Bennett memorizes what Criss Cross had to say about the artist's relationship with a painting being like a love affair, an opinion that she repeats verbatim to an art critic in Scarlet Street. Joan Bennett could not disguise the fact that she had a brain and was usually sharper than the man she was paired with, whether it was Edgar G. Robinson or Cary Grant, who was only promoted to editor in The Wedding Present because he was a man while she was the better reporter. Or James Mason, when she tells him everyone has a mother like herself, him included, in The Reckless Moment. Or here with George Raft. The film opens with Joan careening at top speed on the road. She stops at a private toll road where a man sits to collect $1. She's in a hurry. Someone's chasing her, so she flips a $20 bill at the man and tells him to keep it before she speeds off into the night. She doesn't have time to waste for rules or explanations. At the same time, her inebriate brother is climbing up a skyscraper. The siblings appear regularly in the broadsheets. When the whole clan is called to the patriarch's office so that Walter Connolly's Van Dyke can read them the riot act before he starts his custodial sentence, Billy Burke as the mother has become entangled with a European gigolo. When she picked him up on her latest trip to Paris, she also blew 450,000 francs on some pearls. Joan Bennett's character, Carol Van Dyke, isn't listening to her father. In fact, she spends the entire picture ignoring men, which is aspirational, if not downright enviable. With the toll watchman, she used the large bill to shut him up and return to her business. In her father's office, when he lectures his brood about fiscal responsibility, she uses the time to fix her powder and her lipstick. 
Jones' Carol instructs women in the audience to busy themselves or take evasive maneuvers when a man holds court. They will sermonize you to death if you're not careful. The man she's going to marry, a Hambone actor named Alan Bartlett, played by Alan Mowbray, is so pompous he can't go two seconds without quoting Sir Walter Scott, Shakespeare, Shelley, Byron, or some other canonical white dude. Carol endures the blowhard long enough before she punctures his inflated ego by saying, you know, I doubt that I'll marry you after all. It would be cheaper to buy Bartlett's familiar quotations. Carol paints him as a huckster, full of dramatic blather, with all the authority of a cheap, dog-eared paperback from a newsstand. His actorly shtick made me think of Montgomery Cliff's withering comment about Richard Burton, that he doesn't act, he recites. That's all Alan does, recite decorative lines from memory. When Spot Riccardi refers to Carol's intended as a matinee idol, that's a serious upgrade for an actor who seems too long in the tooth and too campy to be a, a heartthrob. If you watch Joan Bennett in a scene with Mowbray, she grants him little recognition, which makes him all the more ridiculous. If he can't captivate his fiancée as an audience, what hope has he with ticket holders? Joan Bennett shows viewers that silence and inattention can be as effective as having an expert sass mouth. When they first meet, she pretends to be a reporter so that she can suss out his plan for controlling the family's allowance. She asks for a cigarette, and he refuses, saying, I don't like women smoking. Carol laughs and replies that his attitude is positively Victorian. Spot corrects her, go further back in time. All gangsters are at least medieval, he tells Carol. He tosses her out of a boat in Central Park. Bennett falls hard twice in master-class pratfalls. The second time, she looks like she could have broken an ankle the way her legs give out from underneath. He cops on to her little ruse and tells her that she's all wet. It's hard to be imperious when you're soaking wet. Spot wins the first round. In her father's office, in his capacity as official trustee, Spot tells the mother to stop making a fool of herself. He tells Carol to break her engagement to the matinee idol. She's not having it, but she doesn't try to best him with wisecracks this time. Instead, she breaks down into sobs and chastises him for having the meeting in her father's office and standing behind her father's desk. Since Van Dyke is fresh in the grave, she seems earnestly grief-stricken. Spot blanches a bit, embarrassed by his own insensitivity. Carol wins the second round. She bucks his court-ordered authority at every turn. She's a smarty-pants, quick to point out how little he knows about the society circles he now operates in. She humiliates him and mocks him. Because Carol is dismissive and scornful, Spot becomes even more desperate to exert control over her. She changes tact and invites him to a formal dinner. When Spot shows in pristine evening clothes, he's as stiff as a board. He's clearly nervous, sitting at a table full of swells. He spends the dinner as Mr. Polite, minding his table manners and trying to match the rich folks in costume and custom. Spot has anglicized his name from Riccardi to Rickard in an attempt to shed the stereotypes about Italian racketeers. He looks so tense that had a cat screeched, he would have shot through the ceiling. Carol seems like a cat that stole the cream when she plays nice and calls him Mr. Rickard, and then innocently announces an after-dinner trip for the group to Coney Island to see her wedding present. The picture cuts to a tent on the boardwalk, roped off for those with the price of admission. 
on display is a vehicle tagged murder car, a touring sedan kitted out with bulletproof design and gunner slots in the side doors. Carol tells the group it was Riccardi's car and sneers about his track record for violence. Spot turns red hot and snaps that he had the car made to keep from being murdered. To get back at Carol, he shoves her in and drives off, leaving the rich folks in their dust. Upstate, he sends the car off a ravine, and after that, they escape from a mob of farmers and spend the night in a barn. This is a great scene for both Joan Bennett and George Raft. It could have turned out flat because there's nothing new in the script. We know it's now or never for things to turn romantic. She has a case of the hiccups. He wants to help. She fires back that he can do something to make a face to scare her, like when he used to kill someone. He snaps again, hurt by her continuous needling about his criminal past. He says, I wasn't making faces. Carol looks at him, waits a beat, and then says, no. Their antagonism escalates until Spot says that he knows what to do to scare her and kisses Carol. Their kiss may be predictable in the rom-com playbook, except it's also perfectly done and timed. Both characters are in a tizzy. Carol stops her snide remarks and attempts to be outraged. She calls him insufferable, insolent, and vulgar, and claims, you don't thrill me a bit, except he clearly does. Carol must regain control over the situation after his impulsive turn towards sex. She sits on the bench of a wagon with a whip in her hand while Spot reclines on the hay bales. He begins a monologue. When he quotes Wordsworth, we get a subtle link to Alan Mowbray's character, the actor. Men are always ready for a lecture. They believe they are naturally disposed to educate a lady about the way the world turns. They will bestow their abundant knowledge on our feeble lady brains. He waxes philosophic about how Wordsworth's line, the child is father to the man, should really read the child is stepfather to the man. He goes on about the luck of the draw at birth, which has condemned him to a life of criminality. He feels sorry for himself. He wants Carol to feel sorry for him, too. He says, the kind of girl I go for would never give me a tumble. And he asks rhetorically, why do I have to put all my dreams in hock? Ever cagey, Carol does the one thing she can in her power to shut him up. She falls asleep. Spot wraps up his reverie and carries Carol to the back of the wagon so she can sleep. He changes the story to one about Papa Bear and Baby Bear, which should be far creepier than it plays out. When George Raft walks out of the frame, Joan Bennett opens one eye and gives a reaction that mixes both smug satisfaction that she got him to shut up with a little gesture of a snuggle to show that now she feels safe with him. It's all very underplayed and exhibits total finesse. I can think of a host of other women who would have gone for a laugh and overplayed the eye popping rather than create the mood of her character falling for the guy in spite of herself. Joan Bennett tells us that everything has changed between them the way she settles down to go to sleep. She wins this round, too. Spot changes the dynamic between them once more by ceasing to boss her around. He relents. She can marry the actor. Instead of browbeating the woman he's crazy about, he directs his menace towards the actor. Spot issues garden-variety threats about his health should he fail Carol in any way. He plagues the hambone actor at every turn. Folks may prefer Joan Bennett as a brunette once she picked up the hair dye to give Hedy Lamarr a run for her money in the mysterious lady gambit, but her natural champagne blonde hair fits her character. It reinforces her aloof, haughty socialite air. 
It also lends her a childlike fragility for the scenes when she's upset with Spot or the other gangsters. Although you could argue that She Couldn't Take It isn't a woman's picture, since we follow Raph's point of view and it places Carol as a secondary character, it does share some of the hallmarks of woman's pictures. She's smarter than Spot, a step ahead of him throughout the picture. She makes the moves and he plans or reacts. He tries to measure up or be good enough for her rather than her trying to win him over. She really isn't punished for her outlandish behavior either, even though this is after the production code or Hayes code is in effect. Viewers don't see Joan Bennett as a damsel in distress, even when her plans go haywire and Raft attempts a rescue. For example, at one point, we hear her cry out for help over and over again. Help! 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 Her screams are punctuated with the sound of a heavy thud. We worry. Is she being beaten? Tortured? What's happening? When Raph Spot Riccardi finds her in the basement, she's on top of a man, straddled across his chest. In between cries for help, with her eyes closed, she clobbers the unconscious man with a huge log of wood. By all rights, she should have cracked his skull open like a cantaloupe. Raft relieves Carol of the log and says it's a good thing he got there in time to keep her from killing the guy. She's not a helpless, dim-witted socialite. Carol has brains and resourcefulness. Joan Bennett had first worked with George Raft in Hush Money, made in 1931. She later called Raft the most charming, most gentlemanly person I had ever had the pleasure of knowing. I should note that she couldn't take it, neglected to use Billy Burke to full advantage. But there is one scene when she's sitting up in bed, adorned and surrounded by so much satin and ostrich feathers, that she's a textbook illustration for the spoilt, oblivious society matron. No one plays the type better than she does. I'll leave you with this excerpt from Tay Garnett's memoir, Light Your Torches and Pull Up Your Tights. He recalls when he was hired by Columbia Pictures and directed She Couldn't Take It, which was his first feature for the studio. No Hollywood saga would be complete without a yarn about the Caliph of Columbia, the autocratic, vindictive, venomous Harry Cohn. Gregory LaCava and I happened to sign directing contracts at Columbia simultaneously. Together, we reported to Cohn's office to meet our new boss. We cooled our heels for nearly an hour before Cohn's secretary told us, Mr. Cohn will see you now. No one had gone in or out of his private office while we had been kept waiting. When we entered the presence, he was tipped back in his chair, his feet on the desk, his hat on the back of his head, and one of his monstrous cigars aggressively tilted in the corner of his mouth. A squawk box on the side of his desk was a hotline to Santa Anita, where the third race was about to be run. Cone glared at us as if we had trooped uninvited into the sanctum. Around his cigar, he demanded, can't you see I'm busy? As we had been ordered to report, we recognized this as ploy one in the Cone roster of intimidations. Cone gave his attention to the race. When it ended, he invoked 40 kinds of hellfire on horse and jockey because they had lost him a bundle. When Harry the Whip ran out of breath, LaCava suggested we return another day when Mr. Cohen had more time for us. Cone turned up the volume and started again. His dialogue went something like, if you guys are going to work for me, you got to get one thing straight. I'm the boss around here and the only boss. What I say goes. I own the studio and I run it to suit myself. Nobody on earth tells me what to do. I don't give a good goddamn for anybody in this town. I don't kowtow to nobody. And if there's any kowtowing to, to be done, it's going to be to me. The intercom buzzed and Cohn's secretary said, Mr. L.B. Mayer calling Mr. Cohn. 
Harry removed his hat from his head, his feet from the desk, and the cigar from his mouth. He smoothed his hair, adjusted his tie, buttoned his coat, then lifted the telephone from its cradle and crooned in honeyed tones, Hello, LB. My first Columbia picture was to be a B.P. Schulberg production entitled She Couldn't Take It, starring George Raft, Joan Bennett, and Walter Connolly. It was planned as a comeback vehicle for the talented Schulberg, the uh, deposed monarch of the famous player's Lasky outfit. Mr. Schulberg was the father of the novelist Bud Schulberg. My feet were still damp on the job, and the same condition prevailed behind my ears when I discovered that I had landed in the middle of a feud between Schulberg and Cohn. I've never been able to figure out if I was put in to knock off Schulberg or vice versa. It worked both ways, which also may have been the play. Considering Mr. Cohn's fast footwork, it should be recorded that he was once a hoofer in a fifth-rate vaudeville house of the Gusson time. In those days, Harry had a roommate who, unlike flat-footed Cohen, worked with fair regularity, and who practiced the share-and-share-like principle, so Cohn lost no weight when unemployed, which was frequently. Unfortunately, the day came when the roommate found himself at liberty. He had no savings because of his generosity, but he did have confidence in Harry. That gentleman, contemplating sudden famine, got a job. On payday, Harry came home with six lemon pies, total groceries. The roommate groaned, Harry, you know damn well that one thing in the world I can't eat is lemon pie. Smacking his lips, Cone mumbled, if you're hungry enough, you'll eat lemon pie. The picture I made for Columbia was not exactly lemon pie, but I emerged with two substantial goodies, warm friendships with Joan Bennett and George Raft. Errol Flynn's public image remains that of Hollywood's most enduring and bountifully endowed Don Juan. However, while Flynn was collecting the reputation, George Raft was quietly getting the job done. George's marital situation was equivocal. Long separated from his wife, George was unable to get a divorce under New York laws, and his wife refused to institute proceedings because of religious convictions. In spite of his unavailability as a husband, George seldom looked at a girl without getting a subliminal go. A discreet man, he never alluded to his successes. That news was usually broadcast by the girls themselves, unable to forgo praise for the best snake in Eden. Men, sometimes suspicious of Raff's dark good looks, were disarmed and won over after a few minutes of easy conversation. He wasn't out to prove a thing. Also, George was both admired and envied for an additional asset, sometimes described as a baby's arm with an apple in its hand. There was a certain amount of talk around Hollywood at one time that Raft had been involved in the rackets. However, as nearly as I could make out, the scuttlebutt got started because Raft was once Tex Guinan's bouncer. There were some rough customers around in those days, and drinking bootleg liquor seldom civilized them. Raft had a system. He made it his business to know which was the heavyweight in every crowd. If it became necessary to bounce a covey of gun-toting customers, George approached their big man and suggested softly that closing time had arrived, displaying flat in his palm a thirty-two automatic pistol. Invariably, the overlord would grin at the undersized pistol and ask, What are you going to do with that, Sonny? George's instant answer was to slam the gun with all possible force against the side of the recalcitrant's head, a procedure much like slamming the barn door on a rat. It discouraged further communication. George was never obliged to aim or fire his mini cannon. 
Being Irish, I've always cherished great respect for a guy canny enough to win a fight without turning the scenery into the local trash dump. This story has been told before, but it bears repeating. In the 60s, George, like many other picture people, ran afoul of the collector of internal revenue. Raft's situation was desperate. On one of his darkest mornings, George received a note from Frank Sinatra saying in general, use whatever you need. It was accompanied by a check on which only one line had been filled in, the signature of Frank Sinatra. Some guys, hearing from Santa Claus mid-year, would have kept it secret, not George. With tears in his eyes, he showed the check to almost everyone he met for a week. Possibly the widespread word caused Frank some embarrassment, but a rose spotlight is mighty becoming to the good guys. Thanks very much for joining me. Come back next time when I'm talking about Ava Gardner in The Angel Wore Red from 1960. Thanks very much.